0: Good morning. Consider it one of the greatest callings, privileges, joys of my life to get to labor over and meditate upon God's word and give it to a church. So I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for the opportunity to do that. It blesses me beyond measure. Meditating on this scripture that John has given me, uh, like a month ago, has been so good for me, and I just want to say thank you. I also want to say thank you to my my wife um, because as hard as I've worked on this, you know, just going to work, getting off work, writing, uh, she's worked twice as hard um, to let me do that. Um, So I just want to say thank you to her. Um, She's a fantastic wife, I'm so very blessed to have her. Today's sermon is from Mark twelve, thirteen through 17. Now I know that it's been some time since we've been in Mark, so I want you to take note of the timing of today's scripture. This is following the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it is the last week of Jesus' life. More than ever, the religious and political authorities of Jerusalem are scheming to kill Jesus, and they will accomplish their goal, kind of. For context, just previous to our passage, Jesus told the parable of the tenants, in which a father, a man, had planted a vineyard and leased it to the tenants while he went away To another country. When a time had come, he had sent men, his servants, to retrieve fruit for him. But again and again, when these servants went, the tenants of that vineyard murdered or mistreated them. So finally, the father reasons perhaps I will send my own son. Maybe they will respect him. Surely they will respect him. The son was their final chance to repent or face certain judgment. No one would be sent to these tenants after the son. To mistreat the son now would be to mistreat the father himself, the owner and the creator of the vineyard. And this would not be something that would be forgiven. Yet consider the remarkable amount of grace that the owner of this vineyard is showing to these tenants. That he would continually send servant after servant, even his own son, threatening their lives to get them to obey. To give them chances to repent. They were given not one, not two, but three chances to straighten up. Nevertheless, the wicked tenants murdered the son, reasoning that they could take it the vineyard for themselves as inheritance. As in the parable, 1 Thessalonians 2.15 says that the Jews had killed the prophets, the servants, and even the Lord Jesus the Son. And for what? To steal an inheritance? That's not how inheritances work. The inheritance was never theirs. They were nearly trusted to maintain this vineyard as stewards until the owner came back. So Jesus Jesus asks, what will the owner do? How will the owner repay these wicked tenants? He will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, there's more than one way to interpret this passage, but the Pharisees, funny enough, understood it plainly. I was talking to John about the irony of that, that of all of the parables, that the Pharisees understand plainly. They understand this one, that this one is talking about them. Jesus saying, I know what you're trying to do. They were being accused of being the latest of a long line of murderers of God's people but this time not just a prophet, God's own son. But despite their understanding, instead of receiving that with conviction and repentance, they rejected it. They did not heed Jesus' warning, his threat, and it did not take long, as we'll soon will see, before these men regrouped for a more opportune time to attack. Let's read our scripture from Mark twelve, thirteen through 17. He said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now the Jews hated Roman oppression. Israel was theirs by birthright, so they they thought, given to them by God himself. The idea that a foreign ruler would infringe upon that infuriated them, especially considering the recent history of oppression by the Assyrians and Babylonians. One of the things that they hated most was paying taxes to Caesar, Just consider their opinions on tax collectors, how much they hated them. It's because they hated taxes. Furthermore, the popular conception of the Messiah was that he would be a military ruler. That he would restore sovereignty and order to Israel. That he would expel the Romans. Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem just moments before in the triumphal entry, as such a ruler, as such a Messiah. That's why they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and like praising him, because they thought that he was going to be their liberator. And at this point in history, Jesus was well known. This is the end of his ministry. This is the man who heals the sick, who restores sight to the blind, and he heals the deaf, He restores speech to the mute. Withered and misshapen bones fix themselves at his command. Paralytics walk again. He even heals lepers. He has the authority to cast out demons. He can calm raging seas. And he even has the authority to forgive sins. He can feed thousands with just a couple loaves of bread and pieces of fish. Surely this man is the promised Messiah. Surely he will deliver us from the Romans. Historians say that at the time of Passover, upwards of 2.5 million people gathered in Jerusalem. And Jesus was the man on everyone's mind. At the time of our scripture, Jesus was standing outside the temple mount when a large crowd gathered. We're not told how large this crowd is, but mind you, how many people are in Jerusalem. This very well might have been the biggest crowd he has ever talked to. The Pharisees chose this moment to attack. Now by now, the Pharisees had become experts in crafting traps disguised as questions, questions that, when answered, would force Jesus into uncomfortable positions, potentially dividing his followers or getting him in trouble with the authorities. I want to first address their setup and then their question. They said in verse 14, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Truer words have never come out of their mouths. Everything that Jesus says is true, because he himself is the truth. Jesus doesn't just say true things. All things that are true have their grounding in him. Therefore, everything he says is true. He is not swayed by appearances or opinions, as we often are. You know, None of us are immune to that, no matter how hard we try to be. But the Lord is. For he does not look on outward appearances, but onto the heart. He sees beyond opinions and words, and he looked straight to the roots of our desires, which is why it is so ironic for the Pharisees to say such a thing, if only they actually believed it. Instead, they were attempting to flatter Jesus into giving him the answer that they wanted. You may find no better example in Scripture um, of flattery of this kind than Proverbs twenty nine five. You know, nothing in scripture matches this proverb other than this passage right here. But it says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. I would define flattery as manipulation disguised as praise. It's said that gossip is what you do behind someone's back when you want to harm them. Flattery is what you do to their face when you want to harm them. These men were using true but manipulative, flattering words to spread a net, a trap at Jesus' feet. Note that they did not care how he was going to answer that question, only that he would. For they knew that the present public opinion of Jesus was one of the only things that was keeping him safe. So they sought to fix that in a moment when he had the most people around him by asking this question in verse 14. Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You can hear the smugness in their question. Almost in between the questions, they repeat themselves, go on, Jesus, answer the question. Should we pay taxes or shouldn't we pay taxes? In a way, the Pharisees were asking Jesus on the the behalf of this large crowd, on behalf of the public, are you the Messiah that we've come to expect? The one that we ushered you into Jerusalem as? Because if he said that the tax should be paid, he would lose the support of the people. Because no Messiah coming to liberate them from the Romans would endorse taxes to Caesar. But if he said the tax shouldn't be paid, then he would immediately become an enemy of Rome and he would be crucified. And either outcome, again, would be good the Pharisees. But in verse 15, he says, Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. Now, Jesus knew their true intentions. After all, it's hard to imagine how Jesus couldn't know their intentions. They've been plotting on how they could kill Jesus since basically the beginning of his ministry. All the way since Mark 3, they've been plotting with the Herodians to kill him. They've been his constant adversaries and the recipients of many of his harshest warnings and words. Now, for a second, consider what might have happened if Jesus fell for this trap. Just not hypothetical. If he replied because he cares about the pop, all the populace in front of him. Yeah, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Only give to God. What would the Pharisees have done? Well, they would have went to Pilate and said, "We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is a Christ, a King." They would have went to Caesar and said, "This guy's forbidding us from paying taxes." But that's what they did. That's Luke 23, 2. These men are liars. They don't care how Jesus answered the question. They had an intention to destroy him, to to murder him. So they don't care how he answers. Um, Again, it only mattered that he did answer. Nothing Jesus could say to these men would do anything to sway them from their goal to murder him. And Jesus once said of them in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Or another great scripture describing these men, Romans three thirteen. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. creates this imagery of these Pharisees like a snake coiled up ready to strike with venom just dripping from their fangs. Knowing this, you may think that it would have been better for Jesus just to not respond at all. Maybe that would have been the smartest thing to do. Maybe scripture should have said, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said nothing. If Jesus wanted to preserve his life, perhaps he would have said nothing. But it was the will of God for him to be rejected, scorned, and crucified by his own people. That's why he went to Jerusalem. And so when it would have been better For him to stay silent, Jesus speaks. And when it would be better for him to give a defense for himself, he stays silent. He knew their hypocrisy. He spoke anyways because he came to Jerusalem to die. These Pharisees were going to help him do that. For the Son of God came into the world to die for the sins of the world. Always in his ministry, he looks towards the cross. So he responds in verse 16, after they had brought him a coin, he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus asked for a Daenerys. A coin that was worth approximately a day's wage, which is all, by the way, plus some, some income tax, which wasn't much, but that was all that they were actually required to pay the Roman government in taxes each year. Part of it was just one day's wage. Um, these coins were made with the head of the reigning emperor, and they were inscripted around the coin with a title that matched you know, his, his status. It's similar to how our currency is, has the faces of presidents. It's similar to that. So around the head, if you can see it on the screen, it says, Tiberius Caesar the Divine Augustus. And on the backside is written, Pontifex Maximus. These titles declared that Tiberius was not only the supreme political power of the land, but also the supreme religious and divine leader of the land. Both titles were deeply offensive and also blasphemous in their own ways to the Jewish people. So I imagine Jesus holding up one of these coins, like his term in illustration. He holds his coin up in the air and he asks them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And of course the crowd knew, Caesar's. And Jesus also knew what was on that coin. He knew also that it would be that man's authority with which he would be crucified. It would be with that man's authority he'd be crucified. And yet knowing that would be his fate, and knowing that what he was about to say was going to lose him support with all of the people, He says, anyways, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus answers truthfully and scripturally. One commentary stated that Jesus is essentially saying, you can be citizens of heaven and earth at the same time. It is perhaps not the answer that anyone wanted to hear, but it is the right one. might not be the answer that any of us would like to hear, but it is the right one. But it's the answer that would actually not offend any Roman official. In fact, the Roman officials, if they heard that statement, they'd be like, hey, we're A-OK with that. That's perfectly fine. That offends no Roman. The only issue is that it would offend the Jews. But remember the Pharisees' words. Jesus does not care about anyone's opinion, nor is he swayed by appearances. He knew at this time that whichever people turned their backs on him in that moment never truly followed him. Those people only followed their idea of a Messiah, a man. They didn't care who that man was, only that that man would accomplish what, he, what they wanted him to accomplish. They wanted a Messiah. But they did not want a son of God. Jesus does not mind offending such people. So church, I'll say to you, also beware. That you are not that kind of believer. The kind that only follows the Lord when he gives you what you want. For some of us, it is a faith-shattering thing when God does not answer our prayers. When he makes us wait, and I get that. But the Lord is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And he is the very essence of what is good. He is truth. He loves you. He does have a plan for you. But you have to trust that. And that means that he might not always do what you want him to do. He might not always do what you're expecting of him. And that can be hard. But he's the son of God. And you are his follower. And you are simply tasked with trusting him and having faith in him. Now, to continue, as Christians, we are all, we're citizens of two kingdoms, like I said. Temporarily, we are citizens of the one of the earth, all of us, the United States, but we're also citizens of heaven. There is wisdom in Jesus' words for us today. On the service, Jesus is telling us to pay taxes. Sorry. But if you dig deeper, you can get to the principle of why Jesus answers the way he does. Now, I want to encourage each and every one of you when you're reading scripture to do this. Because it's quite easy to read a passage like this and just read, yeah, pay, to, you know, pay taxes to Caesar and let that be it. I want to encourage each and every one of you, even in the passages that you would usually just kind of read over, spend some time in it. You know, really dig into it. Ask yourself questions. Why did Jesus say what he said? What are the underlying things that is, is guiding Jesus right here? So just for a second, I want to go over two points. A first point is that about why Jesus is commanding them to pay taxes. A deeper principle is that God is not at all intimidated by the rule of men. Daniel 4.32 says that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And Jesus has the great title, Lord of Lord, King of Kings. You know, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. That's why Jesus, at one point, as he's being crucified, says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. God is in complete control of the nations of the world. Rulers are like tools in his hands. So what do we do with that information? You strive to work hard in all that you do you pay your taxes, and you serve your country. Because for in so doing, you are submitting to these men's authority, you are also submitting to God's authority, who has instituted them for a purpose. And you glorify God when you do so. So a second point, it is the will of God to use rulers for both blessing and for judgment. In the Old Testament, when Israel is disobedient, to their covenant, God will often send another nation in to judge them. Assyria and Babylon, most prominently, but even Rome at the time of the scripture was used for this purpose. They were being judged. The same could be said for today in our nation, as for good presidents and bad presidents. Nevertheless, we are to submit to bad authorities as well as the good. Why? Because they're not there by accident. God has put them there for a purpose. So we are to serve them as long as we are not sinning against God. Think of Daniel. They tell Daniel, you know, Daniel's a faithful servant of the Babylonian Empire. And they but they tell him, you know, stop praying. He says, I can't do that. I gotta keep praying. Or they at the fiery furnace. they tell three men, you have to bow to this idol. They said, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar can't do that, but we will serve you in other ways. Think about that. That's how we are to do. For example, when God sends Israel into exile, into Babylon, he doesn't tell them to resist. He doesn't tell them to refuse taxation. And he doesn't tell them to resent the nation. In Jeremiah 29, he actually tells them to do the opposite. He tells them to build homes and gardens for themselves, to have families and to multiply and even to pray for wicked Babylon and to seek its welfare. Though Babylon was wicked and the Israelites were being punished, God still commanded them to prosper through the nation Babylon's prosperity. So he says, work hard and prosper there while you're there. And why? Why would God command them to do something like that? Famous verse, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This was given to the Jews in a time of exile, saying, you need to trust me. Be good citizens. Trust me. Why does I have a plan for you? I have a good future for you. And friends, this applies to us today. As we are in one kingdom heading on to another. We are in one wicked kingdom. But God's word to us today is that he does have a plan for all his people. So flourish in the land that he has given you. Work hard. Do your best there. Therefore, trust in God. Be obedient, To your country, for the Lord had a plan for Israelites. He also has a plan for us. So, why does Jesus, with those two things in mind, rightfully command them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? Because Caesar himself is God's. So he says, Give to Caesar all you want. And in an indirect way, you're given to me. I don't care if Caesar has his coins. So sa- Jesus says, back to verse 17, again, he finishes this. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He says, to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus answered their question and he gave them something extra. Give to God the things that are God's. Jesus' logic works something like this. Caesar has ownership of a Daenerys because it's inscribed with his image. Therefore, give to God the things that are inscribed with his image. What are those things? We are those things. What are the things of God? Earthly rulers demand money. But... What is a coin to God Almighty? What value does that present to him? What need does he have for it? Does he want our property or our possessions? He made it all. It's already his. It in itself is no more worth to him than any of the other materials that he has made in the world. He is already the possessor of all things. Momentarily, let's go back to that parable of the tenants. In the parable, a man, God, creates a vineyard. Scripturally, this vineyard is Israel. Or you could say it's God's people. I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but whenever you can, read Isaiah 5, 1-7. You can make a note of that, but it's Isaiah 5, 1-7. It's good context. But in the parable, God sent servants prophets to re- to collect fruit from a vineyard what is that fruit the fruit is the hearts of the people god is continually sending prophets back to the nation of israel to collect their hearts and bring it back to them isaiah 5 says that god created this vineyard himself he had the best vines He created hedges around it for protection. He put a watchtower in there to protect it as well. But the vineyard routinely produced bad grapes, wild grapes. And he asks, what more could I have done for this vineyard? His people, also the tenants, were constantly rebelling. So he sent these prophets to draw his people back to him. But each time... They killed the prophets and continued in rebellion. So finally we get to what's happening in our scripture. God sent his own son to claim the hearts of his people, to reap the vineyard, but they killed him too. Why is that relevant? Well, friends, what is God's that he doesn't have What are the things that he's constantly trying to get from us throughout all history? The things that are inscribed with his image, your very heart. So, what Jesus is saying give Caesar whatever he wants, but give to God your hearts, your sorrows, your pains, your joy, your love, your affection, your obedience. Value is determined by the price that someone is willing to pay for something. You know, I could sell one of you my pen for $100, but no one's going to buy my pen for $100. It's not worth $100. But 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What was that price? It was the life of God's own son. How much more precious to God is his own eternal son than how we feel about our own children? I'm a father. I love my child. And nothing is more precious to me than my daughter. God was willing to pay the price of his own eternal son on your behalf. What does that say about the value of your soul? Is there anything more precious to God than his own eternal son? This is the price he paid for your heart. So my friends, I finish today pleading with you who bears God's image. The very thing that Jesus says, give to him what is his. Amen.